Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. An amazing teacher has the power to change children's lives and open doors to a brighter future. With knowledge, empathy, and creativity, a teacher can design the type of learning that brings the best out of their students. Stephen Half is one such teacher who went beyond the classroom to creating a magical sanctuary for learning. Stephen founded Still Waters in a Storm, a one-room school in Brooklyn, New York, in 2008. Stephen's approach to teaching and learning at Stillwater incorporates his experiences as a teacher, his passion for language and theater, as well as what he learned in his personal journey to overcome depression. The school is for children aged 6 to 17, and many are children of undocumented Mexican and Ecuadorian refugees. The curriculum revolves around reading classic novels, such as Milton's Paradise Lost, and translating it into present-day vernacular. The students learn to translate Latin, read complex texts, create a play, build empathy and confidence, and so much more. Stephen also invites many famous authors to the school, who visit the school to read their own work and help the students with their own writing projects. This unique school, where the only rule is, everyone listens to everyone, is an example of teaching to the whole child. Stephen beautifully tells the story of what the experience of attending Stillwaters is like, as well as how he came to creating the school, in his new book, Kid Quixote, a group of students, their teacher, and the one-room school where everything is possible. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So Stillwaters in a Storm is a very unique school. To start our conversation, can you please tell me a little bit about both the neighborhood, the school, and what the learning experience looks like? Well, the, the neighborhood of Bushwick is in Brooklyn, New York City, and it's a big neighborhood with a rich history uh, that right now is mostly populated by Spanish-speaking immigrants from Mexico and South America, but it's also undergoing gentrification. So there are people coming in to the neighborhood, young people with money. So there's a tension between people who have been in the neighborhood for many years and those who are just arriving and, and transforming it. Prices are going up. It's getting harder for my the, the families of my students to stay in their apartments. They're being gradually pushed out farther away from Manhattan. So that, that's what's happening. Those are the two dominant cultures right now. It's a, a neighborhood that for a long time has been neglected by the city. But now that money is moving in, the city's paying more attention and doing repairs and providing more public services. For a long time was a neighborhood that if you, if you bought a book, a guidebook to New York City as a visitor, Bushwick wouldn't have been named on the map. I actually found a book in a bookstore and looked to see and uh, several books and none of them named Bushwick. It was just a blank zone, you know, because no nobody but the people who lived there wanted ever wanted to go there. I started this 
little school. It's a one-room school in Bushwick after I had been teaching for a number of years at the, the local high school. And the high school was also a place where teachers didn't want to end up most of them. Uh, it was an assignment for people who had, in some sense, failed in other locations. But I actually really wanted to be there because I, um, I at the time, I was working in professional theater in, in New York, and, and I had come to feel like I wasn't much used to anyone, apart from my friends. You know, we, we would put on shows for each other, basically, and and that's what it was, this little community. And someone had, had recommended to me a book by Jonathan Kozel called Amazing Grace, The Lives of School Children in the Bronx. And I read it and I was in shock because I had no idea what people were going through, uh, what these children were dealing with in their neighborhoods, at their schools. The injustice of it made me furious. I thought, well, I have to do something. I can't just keep playing games here, putting on shows for my friends. I have to do something with my fancy education and, and go where someone needs me. Which is very clear in your book as well, that you've always had this drive to, to have an impact on the students that you're teaching. And Well, you know, it just feeling useless is a, is a really crummy feeling. I wanted to feel like somewhere I belonged because someone needed what I had to offer. Right. And, and so I went, I ended up in Bushwick at Bushwick high school. I remember my interview with the principal there. She, she took me around the halls as the kids were going from class to class. The hallways were just packed with kids and they were incredibly loud and there was so much energy. I almost felt like I was getting knocked over by it. <laughs> And then when I came back to her office after the passing time was over, principal asked me, well, how did I feel about this place now that I've walked through the halls? And I said, I love it. I want to, I want to be here. Mm. And I loved that energy. I loved the vitality of the people there and that they were so, they were so transparent in a way. They were just so, I got the feeling that exactly what, they were, that's what I was seeing. And I liked that because I think in Canada, I had had something of a mediated relationship with the people around me. You know, there's, there's a tradition of a certain politeness and uh, keeping things inside you in, in Canada. Mm. I don't know if it has to do with the cold climate or what it <laughs> is. <laughs> there's a friendliness, but privacy as well. And there was nothing private about these kids. I moved to New York at first to, to put on plays. And I ended up writing for various uh, magazines and newspapers also to make a living. But the, the teaching only came about once I, I sort of despaired that what I was doing with my life wasn't helping anyone. The kids, I also wanted to be around those kids because they were very funny. They just, like, they were cracking jokes the whole time. I would visit classes and even though, you know, it might be considered disrespectful, I couldn't help but, but find them hilarious, you know, disrespectful towards their teachers because the kids were always making jokes and it was hard for the teachers to get through their lesson. But inside, I was thinking, oh, I love these kids. Uh, these are the people I want to be around. That's great. And yeah. And so, but, but ultimately then... Um, I just couldn't handle the public school system. There was too much stress. 
too much pressure on the kids and on the teachers. And I was being made to enforce rules that I didn't believe in. For example, the administration at the school and the security guards were always battling the kids about wearing hats in school. So, so they would tell the kids that the rule is you can't wear a hat in school or we'll, we'll take it away from you. And so they would interrupt my class, you know, I'd be, my students and I would be studying something and talking with each other and listening to each other. And then the principal or the assistant principal or a security guard would just open the door, walk into the classroom, hmm. interrupt everything and demand that the student or students remove their hats. And, uh, and the way, I remember the way the principal always phrased it to me, she'd say to the kids, don't embarrass your teacher like this. So she was attributing to me some embarrassment about all of this, which I, I did not feel. And uh, yeah, but that's just one example of things that I, I just didn't believe in. Yeah. And the school was forcing me to, uh, to enforce. Right. Uh, another example, probably even more important, is the, the standardized testing, the, um, the state tests that the kids had to take to graduate high school. And the, the stakes are very high on those tests. And uh, kids got really stressed out and like physically sick when the tests were approaching and the teachers were forced to grade students who they knew and cared about according to a plan that had nothing to do with knowing each other that, you know, that devalued all of that in favor of a scoring rubric that theoretically allowed anyone to grade these tests. Hmm. So these were depersonalizing things, you know, telling the kids how they could dress telling them what they are and aren't allowed to write about on their exam. Mm. Because one of the instructions we got was if the kid writes about his or her own life, their own experiences on this test, then you have to subtract points. Wow. So this all really went against your philosophies of yeah. learning, teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. Just the pleasure I take in interacting with other people Mm. where you can have a, a real conversation and you can be open with each other and, and where there aren't boundaries on what you can talk about. Mm. So you felt like you weren't able to achieve the type of learning with the students that you would have wanted to do. You weren't able to get to that type of learning. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we weren't, it was very hard to get to the place where we could take pleasure in learning. Mm -hmm and in learning from each other, because we were supposed to follow these standards. Uh, that school the, at Bushwick High School worked to depersonalize education, mm -hmm. to take the human relationships out of it and provide a lockstep curriculum that you had to follow in order to meet these standards that someone came up with in the city and state government. So things like intuition and a sense of humor and imagination mm. were just not valued. And so eventually that got to me. Along with the violence of the place, the school was full of fights, the fights happening all the time. 
mm. in the hallways, in the lunchroom, in the classroom. I can remember some really brutal fights where kids in class would just suddenly go at each other and, you know, blood all over the floor. And so that kind of violence, but then matched with the violence of the school system, the sort of mental, emotional violence of restricting what kids can say, how they can express themselves, what they can think about. You know, all those constraints I thought of as violent as well. It's a very difficult environment to be teaching and learning in. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the pressure applied by the school system, you know, I think of pressure as something physical, something that's pushing you down. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And then here I was on, on the wrong side of the law. And so I finally quit and I unraveled. I fell apart. I had to go to the hospital and... Eventually, in the course of my treatment, I was diagnosed as having bipolar depression. You know, so that took a couple of years. I went home to Canada, stayed in my parents' basement and recovered and uh, started being medicated. And it's a long, tedious process. But eventually, Mm -hmm. I was restored to myself. And I was able to learn, I think, from that experience so that when I returned to teaching, I would do it in a way that was healthy for me as well as for the students. That's fantastic. That's a very important insight because obviously the stress of that environment and the stress of the fact that the culture really didn't, the way of teaching really didn't allow uh, align with your philosophy of teaching. That Mm -hmm. also causes a lot of stress because you're the type of person that wants to have impact and you're Mm -hmm. doing this from the heart, going through that that horrible situation where you were diagnosed and working Mm -hmm. through that must have brought a lot of really good introspection and reflection on what you valued and what the problem was that you wanted fixed. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So when I, um, you know, I decided I wanted to keep teaching, I invited my old students to meet with me at first in my apartment in the neighborhood. And then, uh, in the party room upstairs at a pizzeria around mm. the corner. Mm-hmm. And the group just kept growing as kids found out about it. And they started bringing their, their little siblings and cousins. And, and some of my old students had children by that time, children of their own, and they brought them. So the group uh, kept growing. And all we did in the early days was we would read something together and then we would write, uh, talk about it. And then we would write something, whatever came to mind after that. Mm-hmm. And then we'd listen to each other, read what we'd written out loud. Mm-hmm. And, and then we would just have conversations, not judgmental conversations, no critiques of the writing, nothing like that, no corrections. Right. And nobody telling the other people what they should say or do. Mm. Um, just that process of reading, writing, and listening that's all it was and everybody loved it and so we we started having like other teachers who my my former colleagues came to and and that's all this was we just kept gathering more and more people as this activity took off and why did you design it this way because you were very much thinking about what you don't like about the education system you were thinking about how you believe teaching should take place. So what were the decisions in in you designing this initial framework? 
it was, as you said, uh, a reaction or response to what I'd experienced in the teaching at the, in the public school system. I removed everything I didn't like. So I didn't like testing. So there's no more tests. Mm -hmm. I didn't like grade grading, you know, like saying you get an A or a B. I didn't like that. So that we don't do that. And I also didn't like a fixation on correctness, you know, saying things in a way that's grammatically correct or spelling things properly. Or I had really no use for those rules. And why part, do you think it's important to drop that rule for what you were doing? Well, because of the, because of the part of education that I do love, which is people trying to understand each other or a certain topic. But that desire to understand is the great motivator. And writing and speaking and listening are the means by which humans understand things and understand each other, especially. That's what I was interested in. As I mentioned earlier, I loved my students. They were so funny and so bright, so energetic and brilliant and, and wide open. I didn't want to discourage them. Mm. I wanted them to be, I wanted to recognize them right. for what they offered me mm. and, and try to offer them something in return which was, you know, a listening, a listening ear. And so that's, for me, that was the heart of, of all of it. And we all had that same desire. And so that was our common ground. What struck me was that you were really teaching a lot more than reading and writing. You were teaching the art of conversation, empathy, critical thinking, creativity. A lot of, of these themes jumped out at me that you were achieving through your strategy. And it was also interesting to look at the rules you have for the discussion, as you said, that it's very accepting and open. And the main rule that the only rule that you say that the school has is that everyone listens to everyone. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit more about that, the importance and, and how that plays out? Sure. Well, I um, in, in the process of recovering from my mental illness, uh, I experienced firsthand the power of listening, of de dedicated, sensitive, compassionate listening, and how my therapist could listen to me. And what I was doing was telling her my story, all, or all the stories that add up to be the story of my life. She, by listening to me and by repeating or reflecting back to me what she heard and how she understood it, was telling me whether or not my story was coming across the way I intended it to. Mm -hmm. And then also made me aware how I could change my story if I wanted to. Hmm. And, you know, that, that I am actually the narrator of my life. So having experienced that firsthand, that power of, of listening, I realized when I went back to teaching that that's a gift I wanted to give my students. And also I wanted to be around students who would actually listen to me too. Not, not in the sense in school where you say, oh, listen to the teacher, which means obey the teacher. I mean that, you know, I could be a human also mm. and I could express thoughts and feelings as long as I'm doing it in a respectful way. It makes for a healthy situation in the room. So, so that's why... That's why I did things the way I did. 
where you know the most important part of the day was when we stopped and listened to each other. Hmm. And, um, the writing helps you to compose your thoughts first, you know, so that you can consider what it is you'd like people to hear. You know, then you can have a conversation. Then the relationship is reciprocal and you know and that that balance i think is something that's really missing in a lot of education a symmetry of relationships you know because we have such a hierarchy to build Uh, relationships you mean yeah yeah to build relationships that aren't hierarchical that aren't i mean in the classroom i have a certain amount of authority what i would call natural authority Mm which comes from maybe there's a subject that I know a lot about, mm-hmm. or um, maybe I have certain experiences in my life that have given me knowledge mm. of a certain kind. So that's natural authority. What I wanted to get rid of, and by moving outside the school system, I was able to get rid of it, was institutional authority. Right. Because that's where the that's where the the power is in school. The teacher, the teacher is not the architect of the student's suffering, mm. but the teacher is the representative of the system that oppresses them. So it's natural that the kids, you know, all they know is the teacher. So they're going to give the teacher a hard time if they're not happy to be in school. So I I was very happy to get rid of the the institutional backing for my teaching and find out if what I was doing was successful in the sense of, was it giving the kids what they need? I'm wondering, what do the kids need? I thought, well, why don't I just ask them, <laughs> you know? And what why, did they say? Well, they just, they, they said they actually just want someone to listen to the story of their day. Right. Someone to just say, you know, what happened to you today? How are you feeling? You know, that that was the most important thing. Hmm. And then, of course, they, in the school system, they wanted the credentials, like the diploma that would help them move on in education or uh, get a job. In the actual classroom experience itself, what they wanted is, is someone who would hear them, who would, and acknowledge them, you know, where so often educators um, sort of go on retreats and talk about what the kids need or they come up with these standards that are supposedly what a kid is supposed to be able to do at Mm -hmm. a certain time and as far as I know the kids are not consulted in any of this Hmm. and Um, in the writing because you read literature and then they write about the literature but in mm -hmm. that writing they're also writing about their own personal experience is that how it comes out that's how they're getting to talk about their life and their day. Exactly. Mm. So the the literature, I mean, in my own training, studying literature in in college and graduate school, I was mostly trained to analyze a text in any number of ways, according to different schools of thought, but analyze a text and then almost mathematically establish a proof of my, that my point of view was the right one and that I was making a valid case, you know, almost like a lawyer in court. Mm. And then what I realized was that any book that I've ever loved, I loved it because I loved the experience of reading it. It reached me somehow emotionally. 
it, connected it, with your personal experiences and your personal yeah yeah my life. feelings and my experiences and authors i think most writers do not write to be analyzed they they write because they want to tell a story and they want to move people with their story right and they, they want a lot of people to buy their books so they're going you know they want that story to matter to people and so that that deeply personal way of reading a book is something that that it dawned on me is is what the kids would want also mm. and it's a good way to connect the literature as well to personal life uh, to yeah. not look at it purely academically but this must develop a love for the literature itself and the love for the mm. subject matter to well, see yeah. how it connects to your own personal life and to the world you know yeah as soon as you get the idea that the book is one person that essentially when you're reading it you're meeting this other person mm-hmm. you know somebody made that book right you picked it up and read it and now it's you coming together with that person who wrote it you know when when you think of it like that as a personal relationship it's very rewarding and it tells kids that cuz a lot of kids especially ones who come from a household where there where people don't read where there are no books they can be kind of baffled by what happens when we read they don't know what that sort of mystical experience is of reading and why do people enjoy it and you know it, it's not in their realm when i am reading a book with the kids if i read a passage out loud i'll stop and talk about how that affects me like how it makes me feel when i read that and and what it reminds me of in my personal life and and the questions i have as i read that passage about what might be coming next and then i'm modeling out loud i'm saying this is the thought process this is what happens right. when you read you get confused sometimes you figure things out you are moved by something you're confused by something there's so many experiences that go into reading it has to be said as well that these are not necessarily approachable books that you are tackling these are very big classics yeah. that you are taking the children through so there's definitely not easy books so no. that's a really important thing it's missing in the education system to talk about the difficulty of learning yeah. and to say exactly what you said of what you're feeling what your challenges mm-hmm. because when people can understand that oh i'm not the only one who got stuck on this math problem or understanding this line of the text or struggling to get through the book it's not just me it's other people my teacher also experiences that and this is how it feels and this is the thought process they're having so that's a phenomenal thing that you're incorporating into these very important works and you've said that this method that you're using is not just teaching it's rehabilitating trust and self-expression and opening a door of compassion and self-understanding Yeah. which is certainly huge part of why this is happening and it's having such a big effect is because students are actually being asked what do you think mm-hmm. what do you feel and when you ask them those questions those personal questions about their experience as readers and and also their experience as people the message the kids get is that they belong in in the club of people mm. people who read belonging i guess is one of the most basic needs of social primates very powerful as strong as food and and water to let them know to give them works of literature that most people would probably say that they're not ready for and tell them that 
we don't have to listen to those people mm. that you can do exactly what they can do and they don't get mm. to tell you that you're not allowed to so when you frame it like that that someone's trying to keep you out of the club but i insist that you belong in that club you know that's that's motivating too and and the thing about learning is like kids are always learning it doesn't matter where they are Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if someone is consciously teaching them anything. They're learning from the situations they're in and from watching other people behave. And they learn from their own failures and successes. What I always had to ask myself was, in this situation, in the room with me, what are the kids learning? Not what do I hope to teach them, but what are they just automatically learning? Because if, if they're in a classroom in a public school, and there's 30 kids and one grown-up, then one of the things they're learning is that their society is either not equipped or not willing to provide them with what they need. You know, no one is telling them that, but they're certainly internalizing that with the way things are set up. So if I set things up where we all sit together around a table at the same level, the same table, all of us, and we take turns listening to each other respectfully, then one of the things that kids are learning is this is also a way we can learn. This is also a way to get what we need. Absolutely. And one of the things that struck me actually was the type of questions that you ask, which is really wonderful that they're very open-ended. And also that you say one of the rules of Stillwater is to not praise students. So neither you don't praise them, but also when they read their writing, the other students are told not to praise. And initially that sounds a little bit jarring, but in fact, I mean, it aligns so well with what has come out in the in psychology as the building resilience depends on praising the right things in a child and how you talk to a child and being very careful not to say you're smart. Oh yes. Which actually doesn't build resilience. This idea of no praise and rather to ask questions that dig deeper into their writing and dig deeper into the thinking. Uh, Can you just tell me a little bit more about this? Well, a couple of things can happen depending on the nature of the praise. So if a kid in, in my class reads her writing out loud and we're all listening to her, and then if right after that, I start telling her that Uh, how brilliant she is. Then what I'm telling the whole class is that this is what they're going for. They're trying to get the praise. The praise is is the prize. And I don't want them to try to please me. I want them to know to what extent they're reaching me and the others in the class with what they're Mm -hmm. saying. So Mm -hmm. they have a story to tell and they I guess like any storyteller, they want to know what story you heard when they told it to you. You know, how, what effect did this have? It's just like my, my, my girls here will tell me a story, come running in and say something just happened at, out in the backyard and, and they tell me about it. So I'm, I'm listening to them and the questions I ask after they tell me the story are showing that I'm listening and that I really want to get it. Whatever it is, I want to understand what they're trying to say. With the kids in the class, that's a very different goal from, like, I can imagine if my daughter came in here and said, I just saw a rabbit outside and I would ask about the rabbit, you know, what color is it? And, you know, what did it do? And 
so she'd be telling me those things. I can't imagine myself in that situation saying, my goodness, that was a brilliant story, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. right. I want to know what she's trying to say to me. But I do deviate from this practice of not praising. I'll tell kids, I didn't at first, but I do now. If they write something that just sounds beautiful without, you know, I'm not giving them points or anything. And I'd say, can you say that again? Say that again. Everybody hear how that sounds? I'll just enjoy how beautiful it is. Mm. So I think that's slightly different from saying you are brilliant and, Mm -hmm. you know, you get the first prize and all of that. This is just like, wow, I'm really listening to you and I'm really touched. And and the way you said that made me feel that way. So that's Mm. it. It's attaching, if there's praise, make sure that they understand what actually is being praised, like why it's being praised. Beautiful language, of course, can just be appreciated as, as beautiful sound. But if it, if it reaches inside you, mm-hmm. you, you got to make sure to say that to the person, like yeah. to say you could have said it a different way and it might not have reached me but it Mm. really did being very specific and clear on what it is that was. Yeah. And just, and always referring it to the experience I had as a listener or a reader, Mm -hmm. you know, not to some universal standard of what's beautiful or what's brilliant, Mm. you know, not, not for a report card. Mm -hmm. Um, Just as another expression of my experience when I listened to what they said. So if you keep focused on that, there's a way to let them know that they reached you without just lavishing praise on them. You can just say that part, the way you said that reached right inside me. Beautiful. And all of this is happening at a very, I mean, the types of books that you're tackling are are big Mm -hmm. and they're complex. You're also digging into sometimes the Latin and looking up words and all of it is happening very slowly. You specifically talk about slowing down learning and the importance of that. So can you speak more to that about how you slow it down and what is that allowing you to achieve? We slow down the reading. For example, when we read uh, Paradise Lost a few years ago, I said, we're going to just read this one book all year long so that we can take lots of time along the way and talk with each other about it to make reading into a social activity. And then also, you know, when we do that, when we stop and talk as we go, the kids are getting the idea that actually really reading is social. It is because, you know, another person wrote the story and you're reading it. So that's communication. And then if we talk about it, um, you know, amongst ourselves in the class, that just adds another dimension of social activity to it. So by slowing down, you're not necessarily going through more mm-hmm. books, but the ones that you do go through, you're going through in great detail, not only connecting it to make a social and personal experience, which really brings out the love of yes. reading, but also you dig into the details of that book mm-hmm. to learn about the context, to look up specific words, to discuss why in a certain time that's what was happening and that's the the way that life was in a specific context. So you really dig deep into what you're doing. Because books are a product of a time and place. If we pursue that goal, 
of understanding, then we'll want to know all about the person who wrote the book and what was happening around them at the time that they were alive, mm -hmm. you know, and then how that different or related to the time that we live in. You know, when the kids can see that something that happened, something that was written 400 years ago, seems to be speaking to them now, they're thrilled. It's like a, a fantasy of social life where you could talk to anyone, you know, even if they're no longer alive. The slowing down makes room for enjoying. The conversation we have as a group then can be internalized as a, you know, when the kid is reading alone at home, say, then the kid will have in her mind the conversation among all of us in the group. She'll know what that feels like. And her own brain can converse with itself. Even when you're reading alone, if you've had that group experience, you can read something and then you can sort of hear yourself saying, oh, wow, that really got me. Or, or how could I look at this? I could look at this this way or that way. You know, so you're, you're replicating a group activity inside your private mind. So that that's part of why we take our time too, so that they build up lots and lots of experience of having such conversations and then they can do it on their own. That's great. And also learning something deeply, mm -hmm. which is difficult often in this very fast paced yeah. world. And you talk about the fact that they can hear and think about when they're reading alone about the other students and the conversation that was being had in the classroom. And this builds into the, the, the community feeling and community has certainly been shown to be an extremely important aspect psychologically for human happiness and belonging and the importance of that community of communities. Mm -hmm. What I realized through your book is that you're building that community in your classroom. You're also building a community with the students and the literature because you're really taking the literature and asking them to bring it and apply it into their own life, connect it with their own life. And you're also creating community with the art itself because you're inviting in very famous writers into the school to talk to the students and to talk about their work. And then in addition to that, you're connecting the students to the community at large when you're performing plays on the pieces, reimagining the, the literature and writing a play about it. And you're performing it to very diverse audiences, to, to their local community, to people in Manhattan that they might not have ever come in contact with. So you're creating all these different communities within this classroom. But was this an intentional part to build in all of these different types of communities into the oh, structure? Yes. Yeah, very much so. One of the most painful things about um, mental illness is the feeling of isolation. So mm -hmm. I had experienced that, you know, really intensely and, and dangerously, what it feels mm -hmm. like to, to be cut off from humanity. And then I think, mm -hmm. well, the people in, living in, in Bushwick, families who I'm working with, can feel isolated. They can feel cut off. I mean, they have each other, of course, but they can feel like they are an island apart from the rest of the country, especially given the rhetoric that's dominated politics for the last four years. They have a, a profound desire to feel that they can belong. And, and I have that same desire. So 
I think that the decisions about building community all come from, they all come from a basic loneliness, uh, just mm -hmm. as a human trait. We need to belong in our tribe or the village. And uh, if we can't, you know, we're unhappy. We, you know, it's, it's very hard to carry on without other people. So I wanted the, the scope of the work and, and the ambition of the work to be bringing people together on common ground. And so mm. we think about what is our common ground? Well, it can be a space like a classroom where people physically gather. But now that we can't do that, we can't gather in person. It, common ground, I realize, uh, goes deeper. So when I, when I thought about a project to do with the kids after we did Paradise Lost, I thought, well, Paradise Lost is, is a great English poem and I'm an English mm -hmm. scholar. And next time I wanna do something where the kids can feel like experts too. You know, doing, uh, deciding to, to translate Don Quixote was a way to, to make common ground for us so that I could use my advanced mm -hmm. academic training in analyzing and understanding a text and they can use their knowledge of mm -hmm. Spanish and also their own native gifts as storytellers. So the working on the book becomes a way for us to gather and share stories. And that's common ground when we go, say, to a college classroom to perform or to somebody's living room in Manhattan. We are, again, finding common ground, literally because people are in the same room together. And then also because now we're sharing our stories and once we do that we're not strangers anymore and we know that we can meet and it's safe and beneficial it's like modeling a process of making friends basically and that's a really nice way that you brought in in this piece in this over this year when you were reading don quixote because the students are mostly of a mexican and ecuadorian mm -hmm. background so their first language is spanish uh, so they're yeah. living in New York, but their first language is Spanish. So that's a really, really nice way to bring that con connection and community together. Yeah. Well, it also helps that I, I genuinely love to learn languages. Mm. <laughs> Any chance I get to learn a language, I do it. So you were learning along with them. Oh, yeah. I didn't have to pretend. <laughs> everything that they could teach me, I wanted. It's a great way of exemplifying also the learning process, that you mm -hmm. are also learning something along their learning. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I tell all the adults who visit our classes. Mm -hmm. I, you know, they always ask me, what can I do? How can I help? And I say, well, you can begin just by being another member of the class. And, and when you have a thought or a question, you go ahead and say it, show that you're enthusiastic about it. The kids will see that this is an activity that can bring them pleasure. Their experience in school mostly doesn't bring them pleasure. But if you are sitting side by side with them and you're all excited about it well they're going to get excited too yes yeah. and seeing that perspective that mm -hmm. adults are also learning and how they are learning and that it's, it's a pleasure you never hear that in school i don't remember one instance in all my education my formal education mm -hmm. where anyone spoke about the pleasure of what we were doing hmm. never that's a very important part that's, well, that's what sustains it. You are opening up a door for a lifetime of reading. So in fact, although you're maybe in a year reading one book, even though you're learning a lot of other things as well, but 
you're opening up a door so that it won't be just that one book. People will love reading and love the experience and will go on to read other yeah, classics as well. That's the idea for mm -hmm. sure. And, they, and taking, in the case of Quixote, taking five years mm. to read a book yes. is, you know, it makes the, the case even stronger. It's like, there's so much pleasure to be had in this. Mm -hmm. Why hurry? Yes. Whereas in school, as you know, and this gets even worse in, in university, you're, you're often being asked to read like four or five books a week. And I'm a bit of a slow reader, and but I just don't believe that people are able to enjoy unless they unless they have some phenomenal speed reading ability that I don't. How do they actually enjoy all the wonderful doorways that open when you read a book? If they don't have time to go through the doors, what are they really reading? What are they getting from it? And, and why? I, I don't understand why, say, in university, I, I was being asked like in a Commonwealth literature course to read a massive novel every week. And then I had four or five other courses at the same time that were all making similar demands. And I, I just don't, whoever dreamed that up, I, I don't get it. So if you go through dozens of books in a cursory way, uh, you're robbing yourself, I think, of the pleasure of reading. So, And of course, in, in university or graduate school, the love of reading most likely has already been absorbed in childhood to even get to the fact that you're studying literature in university or especially graduate school. However, the students that you're working with, they're possibly not hearing these conversations in their household about the yeah. love of reading, the love of reading classics. So it mm -hmm. is really critical to teach that love and to open the door to the love of literature rather yeah. than going through many books at a time. And in doing this, as you said, the love of learning, the love of a subject is not necessarily discussed in school. But in fact, you're bringing in the authors who have made it their passion in life and their livelihoods to write and to read and to write. And so you're bringing in these famous authors where obviously their passion must come through very strongly, mm -hmm. uh, which is very important to see and to, to discuss. But also you are connecting the students to the art form. So they're not just studying literature, but something that even, you know, until university and graduate school, when you really get connected to the field here you are really bringing the field to the students where mm -hmm. they're stepping outside of their classroom outside of the text and their their teacher to the source of the of the art uh, which must have incredible incredible implications so can you tell me what is that experience like when you bring in an author to read and to talk to the students what is the effect on the students but also on the author because they're reading and talking to not the literary crowd that criticizes and absorbs and devours their work on a regular basis. They're talking to someone completely outside of their realm. So it's a learning experience yeah. on both ends, I would imagine. It sure is. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the kids never know who these authors are. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter how famous, 
They've, yeah. they've never heard of them. So Salman Rushdie and Michael and Dace and all these wonderful people come in. And all the kids know is that those people wrote the book the guest is reading from. Because right. I always ask the guests to read a passage from one of the books. And all that the kids know is that that person right there wrote that book. And so everything that happens is based on that. They don't know each other going into this. There's no assumptions. You know, some of these these writers are used to uh, a lot of praise. Yes. And they can really be celebrities and, and sought after and people want their autographs. Absolutely. But these kids are just treat them just like another person who happened to have written this book. Mm. And so what the kids learn from that, I think one of the things they learn is that uh, people make books. Books aren't things that you just find somewhere. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, it might seem obvious and we might recognize it intellectually, but to actually feel it and experience that a real flesh and blood person made this thing hmm. tells the kids that they also can make, if not make a book, make something else. Exactly. It, it, this is a thing that people do. They make things. Yes. So that's an important. It brings method. it into the realm of reality to have mm -hmm. someone whose profession and who's celebrated, even though they may not know if they're celebrated for what they're doing, but mm -hmm. to bring them into into face-to-face -face discussion really mm -hmm. does open psychologically a huge door that says, oh, I, I know what it's like to talk to someone like that. And then maybe they Google who the writer is and they realize, wow, it just opens a huge realm of possibility. Of It doesn't put the writers, it doesn't elevate them, mm -hmm. you know, on, like, like a, a, up on a pedestal. It doesn't yeah. do that. It makes everybody, again, they're, they're sharing common ground. It's, yes, exactly. The, these stories are, that these the authors write are for everybody. Mm -hmm. And the kids do belong in that club, the club of people who read. Yes. And what better way to show it than to have the writer come in and spend the day with them. And then, so not only does the writer read to the kids and the kids write something in response, and then they take turns reading their stories out loud. Mm -hmm. And the guest author listens to every one of them. And we've had days when you know 40 or 50 kids come and all of our guest authors have been very gracious and have listened to each kid write mm -hmm. a story and sometimes they just listen and say thank you and then occasionally they'll say you know some of the authors uh felt they they wanted to say something uh encouraging to each kid you know, so it just everybody's operating on the same level. Nobody's yes. above anybody else. Mm -hmm. And then I think what the what the authors get from it, the sense that they have reached someone who they may never have expected to reach. Mm -hmm. Do they learn something from the different perspectives that the students give? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the authors learn the difference between being admired and being loved. Because once they read their story to the kids, it's they're sharing something personal with them, and then the kids reciprocate. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, here's this relationship that they have, and they've never had it before because they don't go to book signings and uh, trade stories with the people whose books they autograph. They don't do that. Mm -hmm. So here is this reciprocity 
Peter Carey, one of a great friend of the school, he said to his fellow writers, they will love you before you even arrive. And so it's a very, it's a different relationship. It's not like, oh, you're so great. I worship you. It's, oh, you're another person. And you, you told me your story and you listened to my story. So here we are, <laughs> you know? Wonderful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. That is a, a very beautiful human connection. And Mm-hmm. And again, connection to the real person who actually can write such a book. Yeah. In the book, you were mainly talking about the experience of learning at Stillwater. And I was struck by your own story. And you touched a little bit on it, on how you came to create the school. And you said that that came out of a very personal place for you and a very personal experience that you went through. So can you tell me what is the greatest learning experience in this journey that you were teaching in the public school system? You were very disillusioned by it. You were going through your, a very difficult place. You had to work through some things on your own and with oh, yeah. the help of your family and psychologist. And then you went back to the school system and then creating Stillwater. So in this journey, what do you take away as the greatest lesson and insight that you've learned along the way? I think it would have to be translation. How profoundly human the act of translation is. And how it's present in every aspect of my teaching and learning. In in the Quixote project, the Kid Quixote project, of course, as a group, we're negotiating the translation from Spanish to English of the novel Don Quixote. But we're also translating in other senses. The Latin origin of the word translate means to carry across. So I've reflected on that the numerous ways in which the students and myself carry things across whatever is between us, whatever obstacles or whatever emptiness keeps us separate, we find ways of crossing over it. And language is, of course, one very powerful way to do that, to translate your thoughts and feelings into words and give those words to someone else who then can interpret them. That's an act of translation. And one form of translation is adaptation. With our Quixote project, we not only are translating the novel, but we are adapting it as a series of musical theater plays where we write the songs, the lyrics, the dialogue, and we travel far and wide performing these plays that have become vessels for our personal stories. So we we took literature, borrowed its structure and its characters, and then made it our own. And that sort of imaginative adaptation of the original book is also a way of practicing adapting in life. And right now with the pandemic, our whole society is being asked to adapt. It's the nature of the sickness that we have to change things, change the way we do things and and find a way to keep going. And so in this project of translation and adaptation, I think I've learned the sum of everything I've ever studied or taught. And that is that the goal is to reach across the gulf between us and to adapt to whatever the obstacles might be. And that the way you do both of those things is by listening carefully. You understand what the other person is saying by listening, and you ask other people to understand you by listening to your stories. So I think, I think 
translation and adaptation as they relate to listening and storytelling are the two actions that, that summarize my career. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's a really beautiful way of connecting it and, 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 and finding that the silver thread that really actually ties it all together and mm-hmm. it teaches so much in that uh, translation and critical thinking through the ability to adapt it and, mm-hmm. and adapt to the circumstances at hand. That's really fantastic. So you really do create a very unique learning experience at Stillwater. And it's, it may not be something that can be completely transferable, the whole, the, the entire experience to a different context, but there's a lot of amazing takeaways that I see that can be implemented because you, you achieve wonderful results where even though you don't take attendance and you don't reprimand, children come back time and time again in their difficult circumstances that they may be living in, but they continue, they continue reading very difficult text. They, they do the work um, and, and they have a lot of growth that comes out in their academic and also personal. So you achieve all of these wonderful outcomes. What could be something that you would recommend to schools, maybe traditional schools that they could implement to help their own students? Well, I would recommend that they think seriously and include the kids in this thinking about beginning everything they do with an act of listening. No matter what the subject is, the academic subject, that everything begins with getting to know each other, and that begins with listening to the other person's story. Then what that implies can vary from place to place. But if people really are strict with themselves about it and say, we're going to start this way and see where it takes us, uh, I think they make some really interesting discoveries. Hmm. Even if you're teaching a class in math and you're going to introduce ideas that the kids aren't acquainted with yet, well, they may actually be acquainted with these ideas. In fact, they probably are, but just not in the context of of a mathematics class. Hmm. So um, so you begin by uh, listening to them and, and figuring out what kind of thoughts they're thinking and what they know and what they want to know mm-hmm. and then and build on that. Um, and, and I think that can be useful in school. It can be useful in government. It can just about any setting. You know, if you start with that from a p- position of humility instead of authority, I think it it frames the whole experience in in a healthy way. Instead of saying, I know something and my students don't know it. Well, let's find common ground. Let's work from a place of where you all have something you're interested in. You're all working on it together. And and I could see ways you can do that with math. You You can devise a project or a puzzle um, that takes the form of a game that you could create for each other and for everyone in the school or that um, assesses some need in the community that surrounds the school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many ways that you can turn yourself into a collaborator with students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like with the Quixote project, it's translating and adapting a book 
-hmm. and then performing the adaptation. So that's the nature of that project. That's one way in which I am a contributor to the project Mm -hmm. along with my partners, the kids. Yes. And so I think that could be the challenge for educators is uh, first of all, start with listening. So you, you get to know the people in the room. And then second, come up probably based on your listening to them, devise a puzzle or a project in which you all can participate and you all have some knowledge. Um, you know, and, and you have a collective interest in the success of what you're doing. Um, you know, so I think that would restore some balance and it would, it kind of eliminates the power struggles that so often occupy teachers and students where they just, the teacher's trying to get the students to do this task and the students are resisting the task. And then by the end of class, everyone's exhausted Hmm. uh, in a, because of frustration instead of that, you could come in each day and say, all right, let's get down to work. We got to, we got to make some progress on this, this thing that we're making together. Absolutely. And I mean, teaching and making it a habit to start with listening is such an important skill throughout life. And also showing that everyone has some kind of expertise that they can contribute, but also reflecting from the teacher to show that even the teacher doesn't know everything and showing, teaching that kind of humility that it's okay to say, I don't know this, oh, yeah. but you're bringing that part of the expertise. And that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic pedagogical approach that can be applied to any subject and in any school. So um, thank you. So before mm-hmm. we end, I always like to ask about a recommendation of something to watch or read that inspires you. And I, of course, would like to say that my recommendation is to read your beautiful book, Kid Quixote, which is not only a beautiful story in itself, but also has a lot of uh, really wonderful pedagogical elements to it that I really enjoyed. But even for those who are not interested in the pedagogy part, it's just such a beautiful, inspiring story in itself. Is there something that you would like to recommend that inspires you? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm thinking of something. I think it might have been Flaubert. I'm not sure which author said it but he said that you could be a very educated person reading only some half a dozen books Mm. if they're you know if they're the right books Mm. so Don Quixote is one of those books that I feel like it's a lifelong gift to have that story inside you Mm. and there are other books like that uh, for me personally you know Paradise Lost is one of them and um and, and they're uh, n- not just the, the, the challenging classics like that, but also like uh, one of my all-time favorite books is Matilda by Roald Dahl. Mm. So, you know, that's a book that I reread as an adult because mm. it's so funny and so inspiring. Um, and, but, but what I, if people are listening to this and, and they're interested in books about education, I want to recommend anything by Jonathan Kozel. Um, Jonathan Kozel wrote the book that inspired me to become a teacher called Amazing Grace. He he also wrote uh, Savage Inequalities about school districts in the United States where students are not 
where the promise of public education is not being kept. And he also wrote a, a, a marvelous book called Ordinary Resurrections about little kids and their teachers in New York City getting up every day, like resurrecting themselves every day to go to school and put their faith into a system and, and do the best they can with something that's far from perfect. So any of, the, any of his books, he, he was a teacher who was fired because he, you know, he was teaching in Boston. He was a new teacher. And, and he, he taught his students a poem by Langston Hughes that was considered uh, revolutionary. So the, the school fired him for that. I mean, his students were all black. So he taught them a poem by a black poet and he was fired. So then he wrote a book about that called Death at an Early Age that um, became an education classic. And ever since then, he's devoted himself to observing and writing about classrooms. And he does it in this philosophical and humane way that just restores your faith in people, not just educators and, and students, but just that people are worth saving. Even when our, our public education system fails, it's worth our devotion. That's wonderful. That is really great. And it really does all come back to the humanity of it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. to, to have that at the center of learning and teaching children to love learning really yeah. does come down to the humanity oh my mm -hmm. goodness well thank you so much i i really enjoyed your book and i so much enjoyed our conversation i really appreciate you taking the time to talk well, with me, me. Too. this was a great pleasure thank and um, if anybody listening would like to ask questions they can always uh, go to our website stillwatersinastorm.org and uh, all the contact information is there and lots of articles and videos and all kinds of things about the schools. Absolutely. And I will definitely put that link in the show notes. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you very, you. very much. All right. Thank you very much.